Hello and welcome to another episode of Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always are my co-hosts Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. On today's show we'll be covering the Never Trump movement with our special guest Adam H. Johnson who is the co-host of the Citations Needed podcast as well as being a writer and podcaster at The Appeal. Hi Adam, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Adam, can you maybe just set the scene a little bit for us with regards to the Republican Party sort of around 2015-2016 and then the sort of formation of Never Trump? Well, so uh, Trump in, in, in many ways is a legitimate outlier um, in, in terms of style, tone and, and approach and on some issues. Now, it's always important to keep in mind that when it comes to the bulk of policies, let's say just in the back of an African math, 90-95% of, of the policies, He's a fairly normal Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, he passes Republican legislation, um, loads up his his positions in cabinet with Heritage Foundation, um, the sort of usual suspects, uh, American Enterprise Institute, et cetera. But on certain issues, he deviates, and he deviates most importantly, um, and above all, I think, on tone um, mm-hmm. and rhetoric, which is to say that he, he disposes of the kind of moral, the very thin moral pretenses of a kind of Bush era, Bush type Republican, and speaks in these in these maximalist, uh, zero sum, uh, I think overtly fascistic tones. And I don't think tone doesn't matter at all. I think it does matter. I think, for example, his anti-racist rhetoric does incite violence against immigrants, Muslims, uh, Latinos, etc. But it is largely tonal, um, and it is like it can in many ways be superficial. So the Never Trump movement emerged from Republicans who were iced out of because Trump really was not a quote-unquote establishment Republican. He really did kind of usurp uh, that in 15 and 16 by basically going up on stage and and talking shit and bullying um, the candidates in a way that was, you know, for liberals at the time, back when it was a novelty act before it became this this horrific, violent regime we see, it was sort of, oh, this is funny. He's dunking on, you know, low-energy Jeb. He said, you know, he said Marco Rubio had uh, was sweaty and had small hands. I mean, this stuff's objectively pretty funny. Um, and, then, um, and then, of course, um, there, so then then emerge a kind of anti-Trump Republican uh, cohort. Now, it's really important to understand that anti-Trump Republicans are a very small minority that except for lately after Corona, but up until about uh, April of 2020, Trump's favorables with the Republican Party, and they're still very strong, but up until then, Trump's favorables with the Republican Party were the strongest uh, inter-party support among any politician except, or sorry, any president, post-World War II president, except for George H.W., sorry, except for George W. Bush right after 9-11. So taking away the 9-11 outlier, Trump is the most popular president with his own party ever, uh, really since World War II. And um, the idea of never Trump, when you actually run the math, it's between one and three percent on any given day. So it's a very small cohort of people. But if I was to just examine mainstream corporate media, with the exception of Fox, but if I was to, uh, which is mainstream and is corporate, but if I was to examine CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post, let's say I was a an alien species who only read those mediums. I would think that 50, I would think that 90% of Republicans oppose Trump, mm-hmm. uh, but they don't. Um, Trump is extremely re- uh, popular among Republicans, which is why every single Republican who has to actually run for office ends up, ends up sucking up to him. Uh, and, and you saw this, you know, people, you know, people always speculate in resistance, Twitter and, and Facebook about like, what, why is Lindsey Graham sucking up to Trump? Like, what's his, you know, what does Putin have on Lindsey Graham? Well, have you looked at Trump's polling in South Carolina, where Lindsey Graham is running in 2020? <laughs> he, pull, he polls at about 95. percent He's got, he's got, he's got higher approval ratings than Jesus Christ. So, <laughs> why, why, why would he not support Trump? I mean, Trump is extremely popular. So you have this Never Trump cohort, whose primary goal, David Frum, um, Evan McMullen, uh, Rick Wilson, the sort of high status grifter types who, who fundraise on being anti-Trump. They're 
their co their their constituency is largely other media people um and some with and maybe some kind of rockefeller republicans who um who like low taxes but who think trump is declasse most of whom by the way end up voting for trump anyway um because they just don't say it um but a good a good distillation of this distinction is that when i i did a couple days canvassing in iowa for um for a candidate who shall not be named you can speculate as to who it is it's probably not that hard <laughs> um and when you go to the when you're in the the poorer neighborhoods and you say, and they tell you, and, and they're not Democrats, they'll say, oh, we're Trump supporters. And when you go to the wealthy neighborhoods uh, and you approach their door, they say, oh, no, we're Republicans. Um, now, they're all voting for the same person. <laughs> but there is a, there is a, and, and to be clear, Trump's core base is wealthy people. Um, it is wealthy, rich, traditional Republican donors. Um, but, but his vulgarity and his overt racism became uh, untenable for a certain class of Republican Again, Rick Wilson, for example, right? The sort of Lincoln project, Rick Wilson, famous resistance, anti-Trump Republican. Rick Wilson's uh, mentor was uh, Lee Atwater, who quite literally invented dog whistle Republican racism. He was behind, uh, he was behind the, the Willie Horton ad against, uh, against Dukakis in 88, which was sort of the, the quintessential dog whistle racism. Rick Wilson, you know, this is someone who, who has a long history of tweets. Um, you know, Muslims. You know, Muslims uh, are violent, uniquely violent. Uh, why doesn't you know Obama? I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but why, uh, you know, uh, defending George Zimmerman, like someone who who's always operated on the fringe of of racial dog whistles, suddenly is Mr. Anti-Racist because Trump has stripped it of its pretense. He's basically undid the work of Lee Atwater and prior to that, Ronald Reagan's Southern strategy and gone, reverted back to a George Wallace, reverted back to a more overt form of racism. And this is bad for PR. This is bad for the Republican brand in the long term. So the, the, the never Trump Republican uh, movement is, is largely, a, as it were, is a largely a media creation for people whose goal is to maintain the Republican brand post-Trump and to not sully uh, the Republican brand amongst sort of squeamish suburban white people who they believe are important to expand the party uh, both down ballot and post Trump, it is it is mostly a media creation. It has very little organic uh, constituency. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to say I completely agree agree with that. Um, I'd say that it's it's people like um, David Frum, like Rick Wilson, that you, and like people like Bill Crystal. They there's a lot of them had been um, they had been in magazines and places like the National Review and then the Atlantic and they they'd sort of written for and been uh, socially in sort of wine circles and places like that and it's, I suppose it's the real it's the vulgarity of Trump it's you know it's 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 not even necessarily the fact that he he lies it's just the the way he presents himself he and also, I would say also, that oh I'm sorry go ahead I apologize. Um, one of the great things about the early never trump um movement was that they there was some people who tried to split off um when trump um had won like super tuesday and some of the early primaries and tried to push um the candidacy of someone like uh, david french for example who's a fellow at the national review and it's it is sort of like french and um sort of intellectuals like that had been the intellectual bulwarks for conservatism in the last like 20 or so years and it and and what they got out of it or what they created was the, the bush presidency and po policies that trump has um, supported judges that he supported but i think the difference between someone like david french and donald trump rests on this you know french is a sort of archetype of a kind of respectable Republican. It's just it's the respectability that and it's like uh, and the brand that people like um, David French, like Evan McMullen, um, really buy into. And and I and I think that's the split in the Republican Party. I mean, some people do say say that the Never Trump movement also has a foreign policy uh, aspect to it. A lot of the people, people like uh, people like. Bill Crystal were neo neocons or foreign policy hawks 
and they were very much against the sort of the some of the noises that Trump was releasing during the election campaign. But I th- yeah. But I think that, and you know, some some people tried to get behind um, Jim Mattis for the presidency even during during that period. But I I, I don't know. I I don't necessarily think that it's foreign policy, and it's much more to do with the the cultural and and branding aspects of the Trump pres- presidency. But what, what do you what would you say, Adam, to that? That the, the for, that foreign policy is a big point that they. I I, I tend I tend to think it's more that it's not that Trump isn't a warmonger because he is and he has been. Um, mm-hmm. He's advanced or escalated all the wars he inherited. Um, it's that I don't think he's a reliable one and one that looks at kind of a broad term, hegemonic strategy, which is to say, like he's rather, he's rather um, impatient and capricious about regime like because regime change operations are are difficult to do you have there's a long you know selling point you have to like plant stories in the new york times yeah you got a quarterback at out of somewhere you gotta you gotta see disinformation misinformation you got to attack opponents you got to close up leaks like when what bush did with you know john bolton and all those guys and and all that company in in iraq is like hard to do and trump is sort of down for bombing now and then right if you kind of catch him on on, on (laughs) on a certain day but he doesn't have the patience to follow through on things because he can't. He doesn't have the focus or the ideological commitments to it. Um, he's sort of a he's a racist in a very kind of brazen and, and impulsive way. But the kind of racism advanced by neoconservatism um, is sort of too difficult for him to get his head around. And you saw this with John Bolton's complaints about Venezuela. You know, Trump supported regime change in Venezuela, argued for a military intervention, argued for. Uh, you know, initially, I think to nominally still supports, you know, Juan Guaido and the sort of opposition government, if you will. Um, but Bolton's complaint was that he couldn't focus on the sort of hard parts of it. And this is not really a fundamental difference. They're both sort of racist, but there's there's flavors of racism and there's sort of competent racism and there's subtle racism that he doesn't really embody. And also, of course, you can't downplay the the the, the idea of Russiagate. And one of the things I've, I've always said is that um, the only difference between a conservative and a never Trump conservative is a never Trump conservative marginally hates Russia more than they hate poor people. And, and, and <laughs> that's that that's the major difference, which is to say, like, they all hate poor people. Right. But they really hate Russia. And so you go back and you look at kind of proto Trump, Sarah Palin and Sarah Palin, who is a product of 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 Bill, of, uh, of, of 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 uh, William Crystal, you know, who's sort of the archetype the archetypical neoconservative. Uh, pull, you know, poorly pushed her on the McCain campaign, plucked her out of obscurity, some, went on the Daily Show and sung her praises, said she was, because uh, she was largely a dupe who would sort of read a script. And she read the sort of anti-Russia script. Uh, and Trump, for whatever reason, whether it be corruption, uh, venality, or his sort of disposition to like uh, tough alpha males, um, didn't read that script. And that was sort of um, a big problem for a lot of people whose career was built on on a kind of zero-sum hostility towards both the Soviet Union and post-Soviet Union Russia, and of course China. And Trump, it's not that he doesn't do it, because he does, he did sanction uh, Russia, and ultimately he did end up arming um, arming opposition groups against Russia and Ukraine. He did end up, he sort of ends up doing the things. He did, you know, end up bombing a few air bases of the, uh, of the Assad government. But he sort of does them inconsistently and reluctantly, and that's not really good enough for people who have a kind of global project. And so what Trump has done in their mind is he's kind of pissed away an opportunity um, to, to, to advance what, what Bush started and what Obama kind of vaguely put on hold, but didn't really do anything to unravel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that he's sort of seen as, as not only selling the Republican brand, but selling a kind of neoconservative project of, of mm-hmm. countering what they view as being, you know, the evil Russians, the evil Chinese, you know, this this very kind of paranoid um, Richard Pearl view of, of the world. Um, so it's again, it's not it's not to say that Trump, of course, is like he's not a. You know, he's not a peacenik, he's not anti-war by any means. He's just not, I think, a reliable um, patient because he doesn't under, he, he doesn't really seem to have on a basic level the concept of clandestine and soft power, which is a huge part of. Uh, he doesn't have the patience or the understanding. He he looks at war like a game of risk, like kind of a Napoleonic. You, I take your territory. I get resources out of it. He does like like the idea that it, that he would that imperialists would cut funding to things like you know 
the World Health Organization or the National or the, or the NED or USAID, like those things are soft power tools. Less so maybe the WHO, but the you know the USAID is has always been you know its predecessor Air America was used to ship guns in Vietnam. Like USAID is a tool of regime change. That's partly what it's there for. And he just can't get his his, his little his little wet baby brain around that concept. And so <laughs> it's frustrating for more sophisticated warmongers who understand that that these soft power tools are useful when you want to end up using the military. Um, and, and I, again, he's just such an anomaly to the sort of general way these things happen. And I think we'll look back on his, his presidency as an anomaly in that sense, but again, in many ways on the day to day in terms of judge appointments, domestic policy, um, regular, you know, regulations, anti-tort reforming, name it. It's mostly 90%, 95%. Again, these are, bullshit numbers I'm making up, but they're generally mostly Republican Party policies, which is why he generally mostly has Republican Party support from donors and voters and mm-hmm. sort of the major players in the party who all ended up, who all ended up falling in line. Um, but that 5%, you know, I think it, it, uh, it is somewhat significant, if not ideologically. But one thing you can't, you can't underplay about the Never Trump contingent is that it's a huge moneymaker for these people. I mean, the Lincoln Project raises millions of dollars off, off sort of low-information MSNBC types. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it, you know, they raise money from these big liberal donors like Reed Hoffman. They all get cushy jobs. They, they fund their own consulting. I mean, Rick Wilson gets, makes millions off his own consulting firm uh, working through these. David Frum's brand is increased. He's on all the shows. He sells all these best-selling books, even though David Frum attacked Trump from the right on immigration. He said he was too soft on immigration. Uh, David Frum used to, you know, as of 2016, was sharing articles from Rebel TV, which is effectively a white nationalist Canadian network. I mean, it's a way of reputation laundering both themselves and the party, but it's also a way to sort of, frankly, get rich quick. There's a lot of fellowships. There's a lot of speaking fees. There's a lot of celebrity involved in being an anti-Trump Republican, because in general, attacking people from the right, as they oftentimes do to Trump, is always easier in our society. It's, It's much easier to say... Instead of saying, oh, you know, Trump is is cracking down on unions or, or Trump is warmongering in Yemen and bond, killing people in Yemen, that's not going to get you on MSNBC. But if you say, oh, Trump is actually secretly in love with Kim Jong-un and is like too weak on him and is, 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 is flattering dictators, this is a right-wing attack. No matter how much people want to dress it up as like a human rights argument, it's not. It's a right-wing attack. That'll always raise, rise to the top, right? Right wing, right attacks from the right will always will will always be more likely to get on TV in the pages of the New York Times because it's sort of edgy. It's like, ooh, you know, the the first person circa 2016 who 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 said, oh, Trump's actually like soft on dictators and is and is actually weak uh, for America. They like acted like they cracked the Da Vinci Code because they were the first people to attack a Republican from the right. Like no one thought of this before. And it's like, do you realize this is what Newt Gingrich did to Reagan during the negotiations <laughs> under Salt with the Soviet Union? So it's like, it, it, it's just the t- same tedious crap you see over and over again. And of course, the, that just sort of baits Trump further, which is really not what you want to do. But hopefully, hopefully, the nightmare will end soon enough. Um, just two points, Adam. One, uh, we're very protective of. Uh... People like Gingrich, so please watch your mouth from here on in. Um, <laughs> you got it, no problem. <laughs> uh, and uh, two, I'm starting to think that you're maybe slightly s- suspicious of the, the motives of some of these Republicans, which is... Um, slightly. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't accuse you of anything, but I'm starting to get that impression. Um, just taking it back to the 2016 election, we, we know that the candidates that they could have potentially pulled around and kind of come together and tried to form a... Um, a candidate to try and beat Trump was kind of, well, it was kind of Ted Cruz by the end of it. Do, do you think the, what do you think of the field for 2016? And do you think it's relative sort of weak status and uh, inability to put anyone who is, I don't know, seen as someone who could actually connect with the voters? Do you think that played into the ability of Trump? Or do you think Trump was such a force of nature that basically any sort of Republican candidate would have been kind of blown away by by him. I mean, I think I think that it's both organic and inorganic. I think it's somewhat inorganic in the sense that people re- there's been s- several studies that have shown just how much coverage Trump got relative to the other candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, one study by the New York Times just after the election found that in the primary he got uh, roughly two billion dollars in free um, in free media 
And the mm. second closest was Hillary Clinton with like 500. Then Bernie got like 209. I think, you know, Cruz or Rubio got, I think Rubio got like mm-hmm. 200 million. I mean, he just, the media was upset. The corporate media was obsessed with him. Of course, he's a creation of the corporate media. He's a, you know, even after his anti-racist, anti-black comments for years, they still, you know, Zucker, over mm-hmm. who's now, who now runs CNN, Jeff Zucker, who then was the president of NBC Entertainment, constantly promoted Trump. They loved, they loved Trump as a media spectacle. And of course, he was seen as sort of seen as a joke. I mean, you had, um, you know, Jonathan Chait saying Trump's not going to win the nomination. It's all, you know, Ezra Klein, Trump's not going to win the nomination. And they ask why. He's like, well, because he just can't. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's better. <laughs> um, and so, like that, I think it was a huge part of it. I think the sort of spectacle of it. You know, Huffington Post thought they were so clever by putting Trump in the entertainment section. This was sort of the great liberal hack of his campaign. Um, and I think that the kind of smarmy gotcha. John Stewart ethos of liberal press made them totally unequipped to deal with Trump. And I'll tell you why that is, because what is the sort of great sin you can commit in liberal discourse before Trump? I think it's less so now, but around the time of Trump and, and before that was hypocrisy. We were going to gotcha. Like we, you know, we got Sarah Palin. We asked her what, you know, she said this and then she said that. John McCain supported that. But here's this clip that our intern found from 2007. And he kind of said something different. It's like, this was the cleverest thing you could do, right? Do, do sort of hypocrisy gotcha. But what Trump did is he got up on stage, very first debate, and he said, I'm corrupt. I give the Democrats and Republicans, and I'm self-serving. And I change my positions all the time. But I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do all that, but do it for you. And then you had nothing. What, what were you going to get him on? Right? Mm-hmm. He said, I'm a, you know, he basically said, I'm a scumbag. I switch parties. <laughs> uh, and so he sort of, he like self-canceled before they could do it. And they had no... There was no recourse because like there was no gotcha because he hadn't he had no shame from the get go. And that's why the kind of liberal gotcha playbook was so in, was so ineffective. And, the, and not just liberal, but I just sort of centrist media. They'd say, oh, Trump, you know, was against Iraq before he was for it. And it's like, who cares? <laughs> Nobody <laughs> cares. <laughs> you know, they like the fact that he's a scumbag. His voters like the fact that he's he's. And of course, more than anything, he really did explicitly. I mean, this is the first thing he said in his campaign. He explicitly spoke in racist terms, and that had not quite been done like that. Not even Sarah Palin did that. He mm-hmm. really sort of came out and said, Mexicans are rapists. They're not sending their best people. And there was, and I think I actually wrote about this in, 20, in 2015. Um, I forget it was, like Salon or Alternate or one of those rags I used to write for. And they used <laughs> to come out and said, I'm just kidding, Salon's not a rag. Um, he came out and said, like, I said, there's a constituency of white voters who will turn out for that no matter what he does. And um, the the Republican quote unquote establishment then played catch up by trying to do a cheap impression of Trump. And Ted Cruz to this day still does this on Twitter. He tries to do Trump. He tries to do the culture war stuff, but his heart's not mm-hmm. in it. And the thing about Trump is that he's legitimately, sincerely, one hundred percent to his core a racist. And he it's like with Bush and evangelical Christianity, he doesn't fake it. And the voters can see he doesn't fake it. And his racism is honest and it's real, and he really believes it, and they can see that authenticity. But when Ted Cruz, like, look, is Ted Cruz effectively racist? Yeah. But do I think Ted Cruz wakes up in the morning and worries about, you know, Mexican immigrants and, and or what? No, he doesn't. So when he tries to do it, it just comes off phony. And so they all sort of tried to do this, like, cheap right wing, you know, de- right wing demagogue impression. And they're just they're too Ivy League. They're too. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know Trump. I know Trump went to an Ivy League school, but he's a little bit more rough and more visceral about it. And like they had no way of, of countering that. Um, and of course, Hillary Clinton, I think, ran the absolute worst possible campaign. Mm-hmm. I think I think James Comey, um, his letter 11 days out from the election, probably through the election or was the deciding factor. But of course, that's just speculation. Mm-hmm. And I do think, though, I do think the WikiLeaks hack probably had had something to do with it as well. Uh, the timing of the WikiLeaks uh, emails, I think, uh, probably moved the needle. I, I don't yeah. think they were decisive necessarily, but I do think they ended, I do think they had to have made, they had to have made some difference. So it was a combination of things. It was a combination of just utter democratic failure to read the electorate, uh, fielding the ab- absolute, I think, absolute worst candidate you could possibly field, mm-hmm. and then foreign, quote unquote, foreign influence, uh, and then um, including Israeli influence because the Israeli government was actually running pro-Trump stuff too, um, and then. And then I think James Comey trying to trying to hot dog and mm-hmm. um, and and be Mister Objectivity by by pissing in the pool <laughs> for the election. So that's my kind of general assessment of 2016. I I think it was really a conspiracy of really bad luck and and Democrats not having 
um, and Democrats basically appealing to the never Trump conservatives, mm-hmm. the sort of phantom constituency that was never really going to turn out anyway, because they all vote Republican anyway. I think what I'm kind of getting from the subtext here is that if Mike Huckabee just told more jokes, he could have won. Is that is that fair? Yeah. I don't, it was like, it was crazy because there was no, it was just this machine that took off and there was nothing you could do to stop it. And all they tried, <laughs> remember when Ted Cruz and, 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 and uh, Carly Farina were like, oh, we're going to do a, uh, announce a vice president pick. And it was like, no, man, it's not happening. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. And then um, it took, it took like another three years before the, you know, CNN and NPR decided to start calling lies, lies. I mean, there was no, you know, they were yeah. so behind that. There, there was. They didn't have the moral grammar to speak about Trump in the same terms. It, it's, it's. I always think it's fitting that Trump launched his campaign the day after, um, the, uh, the Dylan Roof uh, shootings in South mm-hmm. Carolina. Um, because I remember when Dylan, the Dylan Roof manifesto was 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 uh, uh, unearthed and. The next day, there was all these takes about like what was Dylan Roof's problem. You know, was he depressed as a child? What was he? You know, what was his? You mm. know, did his mother not like him? I'm like, no, he was a white supremacist. He wrote it in a very lucid manifesto. You can go online and you can read it. And I think that when people don't really have explicit ideology, like I think, which sort of is the definition of liberalism, right? It's inherently a reactionary reformist ideology that doesn't have like a first principles. When you don't have ideology and you see someone with ideology, you always your instinct is to always pathologize and to say oh, it's some sort of like psychological deformity or, or tick. And mm. we did that with Trump, where they were like, "What's his end game? You know, what, what, why is he playing the race card? I mean, what, what's his what's his eleven? It's like no, he's just a racist. Like it's not a, it's 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 what it is. He's ideologically committed to white ethno nationalism um, in a very explicit way, and he you know that because he'll tell you if you ask them." Right. Mm-hmm. And and I and I think that was also one of the problems. Liberal media didn't have the the and this is obviously a generalization or exceptions and I apologize. But like we, we sort of wanted to pathologize and sort of figure out what the strategy was. And it's and it was just like, no, there's no I don't think there's any great mystery there. He appealed to a very specific thread of white nationalism and that gave him enough of an, of an evangelical base. And I mean that both literally and, and figuratively. He both had evangelicals and also had a very sort of fervent following and that is enough to sort of propel you and the and the democrats offered no counter mm-hmm. uh, ideology no counter narrative um they you know america's already great was sort of the distillation of that right actually everything's fine we're just going to go back to obama and that was the absolute worst mistake you could possibly make, mm-hmm. i think well luckily we're learning from that 2020 so that's, that's um, all it's good. A sort of the same as uh, ann coulter it's like and liberals are always like, oh, what's her endgame? What's this theater that she's putting on? Oh, she's a racist. She's actually a, a racist, and that's yeah, it's not a, a theater. A, that's yeah. a ball. <laughs> yeah, but uh, what? But I think, like, I mean, if I was a Republican, which I, you know, um, if I was a Republican, I would say something like, <laughs> well, if you look at someone like Pat Buchanan, he ran on sort of um, trade restrictions, protectionism, and then isolationism that does have its does have intellectual roots within the Republican Party. It's like some paleoconservatives thought that the World War II was a bad idea. You know, so it, it, is Trump riding that that edge of the conservative movement? Or is he just like a natural extension of many of the things that we saw uh, just before? Yeah, I mean, he, he definitely tapped into that, which is, the, I mean, I don't even use the term payload conservative. I just call them anti-Semites because that's what they are. I mean, he really spoke, <laughs> spoke in a lot of anti-Semitic dog whistles. I mean, Steve Bannon, glo- you know, globalist, uh, the globalist elites. Um, I mean, all that stuff is just catnip for anti-Semites. So I think we're a pretty large part of his online following. And online followings, I think, do matter. Um, I think that 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 kind of fervent base creates creates a sort of uh, vanguard if you will for lack of a better term of like how we talk about things and i think that his his appeal to that sort of anti-semitic current uh, a lot of which overlaps with ron paul support a lot of which over overlapped of course with pat buchanan uh, was definitely there um was definitely there during the campaign and has remained there um in terms of you know george soros this or source that i think i think he did tap into a lot of anti-semitic currents um in a pretty deliberate way 
I think that riles up a certain base that kind of gets the Tucker Carlson crowd really excited. Um, and this, of course, is also part of his sort of phony, very surface level anti-war rhetoric he'll throw out. Um, it's meant to sort of appeal to that. It doesn't matter how inconsistent or insincere it is. It sort of signals to to certain to certain paleo conservatives who, who of course, believe that wars are sort of Jewish plots. Um, and I definitely <laughs> think that's, that was what, that was one of his major sort of I think currents that wasn't there. That isn't that is unique to him and not other Republicans. Um, could we maybe just touch on? kind of the post-2016 election, and then how how the never-Trump, you know, we saw Lindsey Graham, for instance, as you say, kind of go from speaking out against Trump to being a supporter of his, and then Mitt Romney kind of flip-flopping a little bit, but coming out eventually kind of strongly against um, Trump again. Well, it's because he didn't pick him for Secretary of State. Had he done that, he would have been all about him. I mean, this is the joke with Trump. Like, a lot of, his, a lot of people who hate Trump only hate him because he didn't pick him for the team. Yeah. Mm. That, that, then he had him in front of the White House and then, like, um, humiliated him in front of the cameras. <laughs> that was pretty hilarious, though. See, it's one of the things. I think Chris, Chris Christie as well. I think Chris, <laughs> I think Chris Hayes said it best, and I'm not a huge fan of his, but I thought this was a very salient point. He said, uh, one of the, one of the um, major reasons for Trump's success is that at any point he's going to, he's going to beautifully insult someone you hate. <laughs> like you know what I mean like he'll, at some mm-hmm. point like Jeb Bush Marco Rubio he'll dunk on them and you'll be like okay that's funny like that guy <laughs> it sucks that it took the worst human on the earth to say it like and he did that he did that he does that pretty frequently because humiliating Romney I mean come on that's like Christmas morning because Romney is the smuggest <laughs> asshole in the world so it's like okay whatever we are yeah. quite strong pro Romney on this podcast you guys are very eccentric <laughs> values to the point that we've uh, Vaughn's actually got. Uh, uh, I have no apology. No apologies. The book by uh, Mitt Romney. Oh, it's yeah. next to my communist manifest manifesto, though. <laughs> yeah, I love, I love, I love that. No apologies is not overcompensating at all for someone who's changed his positions about eight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he like he's done a one eighty on all the abortion, healthcare, and he's just like, I, I have no apologies. It says so right in the title of the book. Oh, okay. <laughs> that sounds legit. <laughs> Uh, well, wasn't I mean, Romney, you... wasn't Romney Ann Coulter's favorite candidate on immigration as well during, during yeah, the twenty yeah, twelve? He, he, he tried to he tried to do a um, a sort of um, anti-immigrant. Pol- he was doing the the uh, voluntarily voluntary deportion where you basically make immigrants' lives so miserable they voluntarily deport voluntarily deport, which is uh, not <laughs> at all. Who does he think he is, Obama? Uh, okay, um, so we kind of touched on it briefly there, uh, kind of previously. But how do you? <laughs> I know this sounds a very loaded question. How how well do you think the media have uh, handled the whole Trump um, debacle for the last few years? <laughs> and how, how do you see any difference in their approach, kind of pre twenty sixteen, during twenty sixteen, and then finally leading up to this election? Has has there actually been any movement in, in the way they've approached coverage of Trump? Well, yeah, I think, I don't know, I think I want to be, like, very careful here, because I do think that there's been, first off, I think a lot of resources were pissed away on some pretty dumb, dumb Russiagate conspiracy. Hmm. Um, I think there was a lot of smoke there, and it was worth investigating, but I definitely think, I definitely think that became a, uh, a sort of CIA, FBI spigot designed to undermine Trump in a way that was pretty cynical and, and mm-hmm. always sort of rounded up, to, rounded up to the most sensationalist reading of events. And much of that actually ended up not being true or being semi-retracted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the um, a lot of good work has been done by the New York Times specifically about Trump's like corruption, you know, self-dealing, all that stuff. It's great. You know, I think that stuff's really good. I think that that's, you know, the non sort of, I think, you know, some Russiagate stuff is perfectly fine and reasonable. I think there's, there, it got so out of control because everyone wanted to one up each other that anytime the sea guy woke up and like farted, um, it was, this, it was, the, it was treated like it was the Pentagon papers. It was all sort of very innuendo based, you know, NSA intercepts of Russian conversations. I was like, well, okay, that was probably just like a normal conversation and not evidence he's a Manchurian candidate. Um, 
but but then the sort of but the real stuff the real sort of wheeling and dealing the real corruption and frankly his 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 the foreign influence of you know turkey and israel uh, israel specifically sort of basically went overlooked um and so there's been like good coverage of his his self-dealing which i think is is useful and again any other president would have would have completely destroyed them in five seconds but he again he started off by being like i'm an asshole so you can't really get him um <laughs> but i think gen to make a generalization i think yes the media of course has gotten more bold and calling things racist calling them lies i think it's way too late i think there has you know trump trump has the only silver lining i can see in terms of reporting is he's sort of drawn out um, or teased out the the limits of, and I think the ultimately the the um, moral and intellectual weakness of notions of impartiality and objectivity, um, which I think is good. Um, I think that again, this obviously I'm speaking in generalizations. There are exceptions, um, but I think that we, you know. There was there was this very navel gazy approach to how we talked about white nationalism. You had all these glossy Richard Spencer profiles and Mother Jones and the Washington Post and Ellen mm -hmm. Times, and it was all sort of like, "Ooh, what is this na white nationalism thing? Isn't it kind of interesting?" And it's like, well, no, like it's not interesting. It's pretty boring actually, and it's and it's not necessarily something you want to do glossy profiles on or or sort of navel gaze about. You probably want to say it's bad. Um, and I think that. Um, uh, Trump, they've gotten sort of better at that. Um, I do think, I do think there has been some changes. You know, like I think there was a good, and they may still do this actually, but NPR had this whole sort of weird kind of philosophical meta, uh, metaphysical uh, explanation about why they refused to say that Trump lied or, or something was a lie, mm -hmm. and it's because they couldn't like read inside of his head. Like no oh right, intention is that, is that kind of Inten yeah? They couldn't, which is by the way not true for you know Vladimir <laughs> Putin or Mahmoud Ahmadinejad yeah. or sort of official bad guys. But that sort of yeah. that kind of um, uh, a, a, a sort of philosophical appeal <laughs> is not really admit. But it was this really weird thing where it's like, look, if the, if someone says something that they very obviously know is not true on like twenty times, I think it's fair to say that's a lie. Like I don't. Yeah. And that was sort of the, and I, you, were, you were kind of pulling your hair out. We were, we were writing for Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting at the time. We were doing articles on this. And I'm like, you know, at a certain point, you're just kind of working the refs and does it really matter? Um, and I think that because the, 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 the media, as it were, was always anti-Trump. Mm -hmm. um, but there was this weird gawking element to it that I think kind of didn't, where it sort of didn't matter. Um, he was just getting so much press, it didn't matter. But you know, when people say, oh, the, you know, the media wasn't anti-Trump, I'm like, well, come on, of course it was, but the media is also anti-cancer. Like, it, it, <laughs> if something's objectively bad, it's okay for the media to be biased. <laughs> um, but it was, but, but it did so in, way, in ways I viewed as being very kind of superficial and always, like I said, always attacking from the right. Like, he was always not mm -hmm. being aggressive enough towards Russia or not being aggressive enough towards China or secretly being in league with, with Muammar Gaddafi. And there's always these sort of it's 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 attacking him but in the most kind of nationalistic and sort of superficial way possible um and doing first and foremost the mingle and this was hillary clinton's strategy as well when she ran in 2016 was to divorce him from the republican party mm -hmm. um, which was i think the biggest mistake both the clinton campaign and the media in general did mm -hmm. uh, because i really think it got a lot of very bad people who were enabling him and, and, and also supported his broad agenda. I think it got him off the hook. It also laundered a lot of reputations to where now, you know, you look at George Bush's approval rating with Democrats and it's, you know, it's in the 40s, mm -hmm. um, which is madness. <laughs> for people who lived he hugs Michelle Obama, though. I mean, it's, he's so he's so Yeah, nice. so it's nice like, to... you know, yeah, Trump has, has... So I think if I'm speaking in generalities, I think the media has gotten better. Um, but I think it's it's too slow, and I think oftentimes misdirected in a kind of right wing, goady way. This is a little bit of a diversion, but just while we're kind of on it, kind of one of the points that has been made about Trump is that he is just so much so often, like it, it's just so much with him on a daily basis. You know, one of the things you know the news could do is just like not pay attention to him, but it's very hard for them because it gives them content constantly. Do you think it'll be hard for the media to go back to a president 
maybe starting you know next year who won't be seeking attention kind of 20 times a day and won't be kind of you know constantly in scandals and that kind of stuff do you think it'll be hard for the media to kind of go back to a quote-unquote normal presidency after this yeah i don't I don't think there'll be a ton of, I don't think there'll be a ton of, I think everyone will be very happy to go back. I mean, <laughs> look, let's be honest, like 95% of the people in these newsrooms are voting for Biden. Like, I don't think this is a controversy. Now, if it was Bernie, it would be different, but Biden, they're all voting for Biden. Everybody mm-hmm. wants Biden. Biden's sort of normal guy. Uh, whether or not he's, you know, all there, is, it doesn't matter. Well, he's just yeah. not Trump, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I get that. Um so I don't think I don't think look the spectacle is fun for a year. I I think there's definitely like tedium. I think people don't find it cute and haven't for some time. Like I don't think the gawking aspect or the ratings aspect or whatever is particularly worth it for anyone in corporate media anymore. I think mm-hmm. I think the uncertainty, the volatility, the like weird you know this, this weird shock about his sexism and racism. Uh, you know when he sends tweets at six fifty a.m. I think that all got old a long time ago. I don't think any, I don't think anyone wants to see Trump win for the ratings or whatever. I think that's not at all the case. Um, I think I think you're going to see a lot of uh, a big push, a big effort to really kind of sink his campaign, and I think they should. I think that that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sort of with the liberal class on this one. I think I think we have to make sure he doesn't win again, and. Um, I don't, I don't, I, I think the, the, all the sort of underlying problems in 2016 are a little bit different in 2020, namely yeah. because the, the, the corporate liberal media had this, did have a kind of, the establishment places like the New York Times did have a kind of weird hatred for the Clintons. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not totally unjustified because they are quite venal, but um, I think that they didn't quite calibrate it right in 2016. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's going to happen again. And I think that also, um, um, I think Trump's handling of the coronavirus thing really kind of makes it. Yeah. Because, you know, organizations like the New York Times pride themselves on their independence, right? They pride themselves, same with James Comey, of like being above the partisan fray. And so they do this stupid shit, you know, days before the election where they release the Comey letter and they're like, oh, I don't know. And it's like emails this and emails that. And it's like, okay, come on. Like, this is chicken feed compared to what Trump's doing. And you got to, you got to sort of put it in proportionality. I don't. I don't think they're going to make the same mistake again. But maybe I'm being optimistic. So you well, don't think there's a media executive somewhere who looks at the Trump tweet that says, "Well, you know, with Biden in the White House, they won't get the same ratings they got before." And you don't think there's a media executive who's like, "Oh, no, we're going to lose all these I ratings." I don't think so. They all vote for Trump. I mean, they, I mean, they all vote for Biden. They all support Biden, except for Fox. I mean, I, I think that was true as a sort of novelty early on. In, in 15 and maybe even some of the general election like for sure there's definitely like a sort of he's a he's a he's a he's a he's a ratings animal we can kind of contain him in the cage but i think once it became clear they couldn't and once it became clear that he begins to undermine their bottom line in other ways eg you know sort of the stability not making sure millions of people die from disease like sort of basic government 101 stuff i think that they're not doing that I, i'm not big into the whole like it's all about ratings you know, I think that could be very, I think that could be very reductionist, um, you know, in amidst the, I think, the overarching importance of ideology in, in newsroom and cable news. Well, I can um, confirm that the Impressions of America media room will be voting for uh, Biden purely because Mitt Romney is telling us to do so. And we exactly. just, we okay. just. We just blindly follow Mitt for most things, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> and, and, you, and you have no, and, and you have no apologies from doing so. <laughs> we have no apologies. Yeah, we're, no we're, apologies. we're, we're Quite confirmed. By so, Adam, what do you think of the hardening of opinion um, towards? I mean, just a lot of the people in the media have taken in people like George Will, people like David Frum, and and sort of put their arms around them and said that these people are good Republicans, and in the future they'll they'll still be good Republicans. What do you think about the hardening of opinion around those kind of characters, and and the media's completely. Um, sort of creating a sense that these two kinds of republicanism are diametrically opposed um yeah i mean again they're all friends like they all hang out at the same parties they all know each other it's like Mm -hmm. trump trump wasn't part of that little club and he wasn't more importantly willing to sort of become part of that club largely because he's a weird misanthrope who sits you know sits in his room and tweets and reads street rendering diet coke 
um, all day. So it's like, I don't know. I think, again, it's about maintenance of the GOP brand. Like, I think the, the, the Never Trump stuff can really be best understood in those terms. Um, and they're hoping to just weather the Trump storm and then come back with whatever, you know, neoconservative cyborg they, 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 they can create, uh, whether it's Tom Cotton or, well, you know, maybe we can try to dust off Marco Rubio again. Uh, I think Jeb's got a really strong, strong feel. I think he's got Jeb. a big future ahead, big future ahead of him. <laughs> Jeb back, the man, no, the man who seems incredibly bored and put out to be running for president. Yeah. Uh, low energy Jeb. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I don't know. I, you know, I think I think they're all just kind of waiting out to come back. And um, it's like with Trump, you know, you watch, you sit there and you watch, you know, Samantha Power try to angle her, you know, do a lot of Yemen war revisionism and write these self-serving bullshit saccharine memoirs. And they're all kind of, you know, Ben Rhodes starts his, his little think tank and is constantly trying to uh, polish his progressive um progressive credentials despite overseeing you know wars and bombings and drone bombings and, and running guns to sectarian gangs like it, it, everyone sort of waits during these times to polish their brand for the next administration and i think from and will and all these guys are accurately assuming that in eight years from his election four years from now there'll be some other guy they can go ingratiate themselves with mm-hmm. um while in mean, meantime polishing their brands and building their social media following and, and getting on msnbc remaining relevant right like there's a there's a lane there. There's a lane there. If you're anti-Trump and you're Republican, you will always get a spot on MSNBC, CNN, and New York Times, and the Washington Post, despite the fact that you have absolutely zero real-world constituencies other than other people who work at CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, and Washington Post. I mean, well, th- I mean, these people the do not making, exist in reality. Even uh, the Mooch's making television, you know, and making a star for himself. By, he, was only there, he was only there for, what, 13 days? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh. Just... Oh, sorry, Von, on you go. Oh, thank you, Simon. Um, so I just want to take a kind of long, rambling, circular question here. Um, sure. So Sarah Longwell is one of the um, main Republican researchers in the kind of Never Trump movement, and she's been studying this since before 2016, um, looking at why people voted for Trump and how their uh, kind of opinions have changed since he became president. Um, And one of her kind of conclusions was that in 2016, the Never Trump movement was a lot of Republican elites and ex-aides to Bush and um, both Bushes and other high-level political kind of advisors who wrote letters and kind of agreed among themselves that Trump wasn't good for Republicanism. And they, they signed these public letters, but that didn't really do anything because most of the Trump base and Trump's campaign was about anti-elitism. So using like that conclusion of hers, she's she's been working with like Republicans against Trump um, and the Lincoln Project and making the the new kind of quote unquote grassroots anti-Trumpism. Um, and they're they're showing much more of the the real people kind of testimonials of saying, I did vote for Trump. I've never voted Democrat, um, but this fall I'm voting for Biden. And they, they've they seen that, that that's kind of getting a better response among Trump voters. And especially with the Lincoln Project. Trump? Sorry? I said, is it? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess <laughs> she says so, yeah. Um, yeah, those, those are just her kind of preliminary conclusions about polls and opinions. Right. Um, which we know don't necessarily mean shit, but that's all right. Um, (laughs) And the Lincoln Project is getting a lot of traction on social media in a way that that wasn't, definitely wasn't seen in 2016, but they are still the same kind of elites and political advisors. So my question after all of that is, what do you think the role of social media, not necessarily cable, news media, all of the bigger kind of corporate suspects, but just social media itself, what do you think that's going to kind of play in this election? Well, there's social media, then there's sort of like astroturfy, blue check mark social media. And I say that as right. someone with a blue check mark. Like <laughs> the fucking people with 400,000 followers who will go on to MSNBC and, you know, they all have political consulting firms and they're all, you know, kind of, uh, they, 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 they rotate through these, these never ending string of never Trump nonprofit types, you know, Lincoln Project. 
uh, all these sort of groups that are funded by billionaires, Reed Hoffman, and, and uh, even frankly George Soros, other other kind of big liberal donors. Uh, and they kind of like go and they get you know they get their follower count up by by tweeting things like, you know, Trump has committed treason again. RT, if you agree, and everyone you know, a bunch of like zombie liberals <laughs> retweeted. It's like, and it's like, look, you know, and also you know if you, if you look at your Twitter feed now, now that they sort of filtered out fake news and all this sort of stuff, you I mean most you, I get a lot of resistance liberals and I don't follow any of them. Um, there's a, there's there's a sort of boosting of this kind of banal anti-Trump surface level liberalism. Um, so like, yeah, do I think it's a shock that Lincoln Project gets a lot of tweets because it's promoted by a lot of these sort of big liberal, uh, corporate liberal type, uh, anti-Trump types, uh, and, and former political consultants? Yeah. Do I think there's an organic constituency of people who sort of think anything that makes Trump looks bad is good, regardless of whether or not it's praising Ronald Reagan or some dumb shit like that? Yeah, I think that's probably both. But it's I think it's kind of propped up by elites. I think it's not very organic. I think it doesn't really I think it engenders a kind of passive praise rather than a kind of evangelical praise. Um, I'm obviously very biased here, but I do think a Bernie Sanders candidacy would have had a far more organic and far more robust social media presence to the extent that it matters. And I do think it matters somewhat. I agree. Um, I think I think I think evangelism or sort of being having a core group of people who are very earnest and sincere about your candidate is actually quite important to winning elections. Obama showed that. I think Trump showed that. Clinton really didn't have that. I think that was a problem. Um, I think Biden's strategy of just running out the clock and hoping to bank on anti-Trump hatred will probably work. I kind of wish we had something that was both that and the other thing. Um, but no, I, I think I think the groups like the I think groups like the Lincoln Project are basically just um, PR scams to raise money for for consulting firms for people who are who are running a branding exercise. Uh, do I think maybe somewhere in there there's some people who really want to stop Trump? Probably. But um, they don't really spend their money that way. You know, getting viral ads is not, quote unquote, viral ads is mostly just preaching to the choir. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that all the resources and all the money and all the time that goes into sort of trying to pick off nominal Republicans to vote for Trump. Um, I think it's fine to have a little bit of that. I think a lot of the money goes into that because, like I said, there's a lot of money in being conservative and being mid-centrist. Um, again, a lot of the people in the Lincoln Project, uh, uh, Evan McMullen, Rick Wilson, all these guys, um, they spent a lot of their time in February bashing Bernie Sanders. Like those projects were also parallel organizations to criticize Bernie Sanders um, because their whole thing was about like upholding the center or whatever. Kind of no, a lot of, a lot of the same donors as no labels, these kind of insipid Wall Street back, billionaire back, AstroTurf groups. Um, so that's where the money, that's where the energy ends up going. Um, now, I think that that isolates progressives. I think it isolates young people. I think it isolates people of color. I think most of these people don't give a shit about what Rick Wilson thinks. I think it's mostly just people who live in the Beltway. So I, on a purely strategic level, I don't think it's very smart. Uh, but my guess is it ultimately won't matter that much because I do think that the hatred for Trump and Trump's low poll numbers, you know, inshallah, praise be God, we're lucky enough. I think, you know, God willing, uh, he'll lose anyway. But I don't think it's I don't think it's a way of sort of building a long term sustainable democratic majority. I think it's very myopic. I think it's based on appeasing other pundits and and, and the parasitic consultancy class that runs the Democratic Party. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't disagree. Um, guys, do you have any more questions for Adam before we move on to anything else? Okay. Um, I was just going to ask about the, for what it's worth, the the impeachment against Trump and sort of never never Trump moving around that time. Was was there, there wasn't any real chance there was actually going to be a, a formal impeachment against Trump with actual Republicans backing it. Was there? I mean, it it, it got about as far as it could have considering. Is that is that fair? Stephen? You know, I I sort of reluctantly supported the impeachment because if it's true, here's the deal. This is the one of the pro- like, what well, the underlying thing that Trump was supposedly being corrupt on was trying to find, was was withholding aid to Ukraine, quote unquote aid. It was it was mm-hmm. aid, by the way. It was weapons, right, to mm-hmm. a foreign government to fight another foreign government. Uh, that was, it, it's hard for me to sort of get really romantic and and, and passionate about funding the Azov Brigade, you know, sort of quasi right wing paramilitary groups in Ukraine to fight the Russian government. 
that doesn't really get me too excited. It doesn't. Oh, we can get like, Toby to do that for you if you want. It, 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 it's it, it's not exactly the substance. Of, it's not exactly the substance of Bob Dylan songs, right? It's not like something <laughs> that's really romantic. Um, so we were all supposed to get sort of mad about the underlying issue, but I do think that like Trump calling up uh, a foreign, you know, a foreign government and saying we're going to withhold aid, but if you don't find Jordan, my opponent does cross a line. Like that seems reasonable to me. Like that seems like something you shouldn't be able to do. Um, so again, in this Trump thing, it's always like, which of these is like less evil. Uh, I think there's a way of saying this is corrupt without doing what Adam shifted, which is sort of get on the congressional floor and talk about how important it is. We are in these, these dicey, uh, oftentimes right-wing organizations in Ukraine, um, oftentimes anti-Semitic white nationalist organizations, though, of course, not all of them, but many of them are. Um, I think there's a way of doing that without doing the sort of attack from the right shtick. Um, I thought, Again, sort of saying, can you find dirt on my opponent? That would, you know, that'd be great. Probably sort of seems bad. Seems like it crosses the line. It definitely seems worthy of impeachment. I, again, I wish we could get Trump on the 85 other things he did that right. locking, you know, locking up kids at the border, you know, racist mm-hmm. inside regimes, ICE raids, all that stuff. That's sort of, but, but when it comes to undermining national security orthodoxy, then, whoa, you know, watch out. Now it's all bets are off. But, um, you know, beggars can't be choosers. So I said, okay, let's try to do this. Uh, of course, it went nowhere. Of course, it was a bust. Of course, Republicans are always going to defend Trump. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in retrospect, like probably should have tried to impeach him for his handling of the coronavirus, which has killed, I think, way more people than it needed to. I think yeah. under a Clinton administration, I think it's fair to say he probably killed tens of thousands or more based on the fact that he has a zero plan, fired all the scientists, mm-hmm. mixed, mixed messages, um, you know, name and just completely botch this. You know, if there's ever a case for competency in government, which I do think is overrated, this would be a time it's definitely not overrated. Um, but it will just that, disappear I, by itself one day, Adam. That's just that's what I'm told. If you just yeah. if you just uh, bring up bring up uh, enough Republican governors and, and Trump <laughs> to tell you that you can just mago it to death. But uh, so yeah, like I do think they I do think they kind of pissed away their their impeachment shit on that. But who who, who knew who knew that was going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Like it seems like. It seems like they wanted to have one go at it. I don't know what the opportunity cost was. You know, maybe it wasn't worth it in retrospect. Maybe I was wrong. I don't know. But uh, it just seems like if the guys, you know, like openly break the law in a very explicit way over and over again, like at some point, I don't want to be too precious about the rule of law, but at some point you got to come and say like, yeah, you can't do that. Like that's, that needs to be sanctioned. You can't just like call up a country and say, I'm going to withhold aid if you don't find dirt on my opponent. Mm-hmm. Like that seems bad. Well, I mean, he did a similar th- similar thing with the this, you know, kind of withhold funding for states who were mean to him. You know, it's, it's yeah. I mean, that shit's completely psychotic and should be. I mean, like, I don't know. I I think, I think that you there's a moral hazard if Congress routinely lets him get away with breaking laws in very explicit ways, where like it sends a message to all future presidents that you can do that and then some. And I do think sometimes you have to like time out. Okay, sorry, buddy, we're gonna call you out on this one. <laughs> Um, has, has all this but who, stuff... who knows if it was politically wise? I actually didn't really care if it was politically wise because I, I, I do think there's a I do think there's a bigger principle there with regard to like just wanton criminality. Mm-hmm. That has, is. Your... Sorry, no, you can go ahead. I was just gonna say, has 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 the Trump presidency and the kind of campaign running up to it has that changed how you view what's possible within American politics and what you can get away with and kind of what the what what it was supposed to be kind of you you know you can do as a president and what the the sort of chains of of you know parliamentary procedure sort of allow you to do i mean it is quite extraordinary you know if you wrote this in a tv show you wouldn't get it past the first draft from an executive it is quite i will say what what trump has done and i think specifically the total failure of elites both in both parties majority republican both parties to Mm -hmm. handle coronavirus has made it very clear that if anyone had any false idea about elites making sure there's the scene in the movie zero dark 30 an otherwise horrible movie but there's a scene where the sort of big boss comes in and he's got a 12 cia agents around the table who are all hunting bin laden he's like i know you guys think there's some other room somewhere on some floor somewhere who who are who are trying to find bin laden but there's not we're it that's it um i think that that's the way we have to look at what's going on right now which is there isn't some elite that is looking out for um Mm -hmm. You know, climate change, for example, it's, I think it's a yep. big one. Um, there, I think there's always this assumption that, oh, there's some scientist, there's some panel somewhere that's going to make sure that when it comes down to it, we're not all going to flip the cracks. And I think watching the coronavirus play out, watching 
Trump's abject failure, watching Nancy Pelosi completely blow it in the first week in a, in a mm-hmm. very cynical way, worrying about deficits when people are starving. I uh, think God, the, the only thing that managed to base barely hold the tide was uh, the the very measly unemployment payouts, which I think happened mostly by accident. Um, that there is no elite going to protect us. There was no Republican elite that was going to stop Trump. There is an elite; they exist, um, but they're but they're very myopic and they're very self serving. Um, and you can't just count on um, some mysterious force out there that's going to solve our problems. But it is, in fact, incumbent upon, I think, you know, progressives, activists, people out there to actually say, OK, well, we need a fucking plan for this because mm-hmm. there is no other room somewhere. There's no other floor somewhere where anyone's taking care of any of this shit. And Trump's presidency and the train wreck of his presidency, I think, is evidence of that. Um, and his handling of coronavirus and the Democratic failure to, to handle coronavirus in, in a way that was proportionate to the problem um, while watching people suffer and drown and be evicted, you know, shows that, that, that I think mm. that you have to you have to get away from that sort of complacency um, and try. I think if, if there's one sort of good that's taken out of the Trump terror, it's that it's that like we can't count on quote-unquote, Democratic elites defeating Trump. We can't count on Republican elites defeating Trump. We have to count on ourselves. Yeah, ourselves and Newt Gingrich. That's who we can trust. Yeah, I think there is this sort of belief that there are, there's a, these elites and they are supposed to be the bulwark and, the, and they are supposed to protect American institutions. And there's democracy, but then there's also this, like, security state, this, this shadowy elite that is there and is this is fail-safe when like shit hits the fan and things like that and i think it's probably part of the reason why the never trump movement appeals to a lot of people and i would say with yeah um, like nancy pelosi yeah. you know there's a there's that quid pro quo with um ukraine and then she says well actually finally we have something simple that we can sell to the public someone in the security state managed to un- uncover this you know there is this um, yeah. defense that we have but I mean, if you look at the coronavirus, what it is, it's just it's basic um, Republican federalism and, and, a, and a disgust for government at all that has caused this. It isn't an outlier or some sort of like, um, thing that we, we, we cannot have anticipated, given the Republicans' view of government policy. Yeah, I would uh, tend to agree. Not the only reason. Um, is there any other questions you guys have got at the moment, or do you want to move I, on? I would want to talk about the future of the Republican Party from from your perspective as a as a media analyst, because I would say that there are some figures in the Republican movement who will be looking to, like, say, Josh, Josh Hawley criticized. Um, George Will and George Will's um, connection to Reaganism. Do you, do you think that Never Trump um, will be able to? Um, uh, sorry, uh, we get some interference on the line there. I don't know if, if that's... I don't know where it's coming. It's probably me. Hold on. All right, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, like George Hawley has attacked people like George Will. Do Do you think that? Never Trump will be able to save the the Republican brand, and the media will be able to save the Republican brand, or do you think Trump will be a blueprint for a future Republican party? I think they'll try to do a hybrid. I think they'll try to take all the sort of fervor and, and race baiting of a, a, a Trump, but try to mold it into something more conventional that can that can be predictable and actually follow through on overthrowing Venezuela's government. <clears throat> For example, um, Adam, do you have any thoughts on the election with regards to kind of it actually, you know, fears of it still going ahead, or you know, conspiracy <coughs> theories that Trump actually wants the coronavirus because it'll stop the election or anything? Like that? Have you actually got any genuine fears about the the election either going ahead or the fact that it could just be completely sort of illegitimized by you know? Uh, voting, um, you know, stopping black people from voting, etc. In, in certain areas, uh, have you got any genuine fears about this election? Because it does seem kind of a no one's quite sure we're in territory we've never seen before. 
Um, I think there. I think there'll be an election. I think it's. I think it's people who say there's not the election is sort of paranoid mongering. I think that that's not the way Trump's form of fascism works. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. I think Republicans will try to undermine every mail-in ballot. I think they'll try to avoid every mail-in ballot and work that way. But there'll be an election. There'll be a nominal election. I don't know how legitimate it will be based on the mail-in ballot shit show. But I think mm-hmm. that, as far as I can tell, with liberal progressive groups, there's not a huge worry that will materially affect it either way. Right. Cool. Um, and I, I t- take it you will just be writing in, you know, a Republican of your choice rather than actually picking Biden. Is it... Uh, <laughs> Jeb, maybe I'm not sure. If you got yeah, I'm all, in, I'm all in for Jeb 2020. <laughs> I think he's due. Time. <laughs> There's kind of nowhere to go with that, is there? We, uh, we need low energy back in the White House. I think. We do. Low That's energy. Genuinely. Too yeah. much, too much, too much Adderall snorting. We need low energy Jeb. Oh, well, maybe that's who Sleepy Biden will pick, so they can just be really restful together. Just take little naps. Need ice cream. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I actually have to. I actually have to head out. I'm sorry. My uh, I have to go to my uh, brother-in-law's place and no, no problem. Do some barbecuing. No problem. Well, uh, who could say no to barbecuing? Uh, Adam. Yeah. Um. You know, on behalf of uh, everyone here, uh, thanks for <laughs> thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, yeah, for, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It was fun. And, uh, yeah. G- good luck with your your Jeb campaign for the rest of the year. You got it. All right, man. <laughs> cheers. Right. All right, John. Goodbye. Cheers. Thanks, Adam. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Uh, from Adam, Jeb, uh, Vaughn, Toby and myself, Simon. Uh, Thanks very much for listening and we'll have a new episode for you in the near future. Goodbye.